series, Theology and Motion, because James is a book that challenges us, challenges you to live out what you believe about God. Whereas other books may be longer, may be richer, may be more theologically robust, James challenges your Christian walk directly and brings in a theological component to back up his arguments. So we've just come out of chapter 1, where James describes how we grow in our faith through the trials that we go through, as well as through the stuff that we do to bring tangible expression to the gospel. And today we're going to be moving into chapter 2. And before I proceed, I just want to say that James chapter 2 is one of the most controversial chapters in the entire New Testament, because he seemingly contradicts the theology of the Apostle Paul. But as we'll see in a couple weeks, James actually complements Paul's theology. And taken together, they form a robust account of the relationship between our faith and our works. And Tim Butler is going to be tackling that for the next couple weeks, so you won't want to miss that. But today, we'll see that James is tackling another big issue in the church. And that's the issue of treating everybody equally and fairly. I grew up in a pretty, you know, affluent county in, in Michigan. It's not a brag, it's just a fact. And uh, I grew around a lot, a lot of people who had money. For instance, I grew up around a lot of kids whose parents played for the Detroit Pistons or the Detroit Lions or the Detroit Red Wings. And uh, I grew up loving, you know, golf as well. And I uh, used to be a caddy, which, by the way, is a great gig. I mean, you really sharpen up your social skills, get to keep in shape, get to talk to some pretty, really, really cool people. And I grew to love the game of golf, okay? So, like any good golfer, I end up going to the golf range a couple times a week uh, just to kind of amp up my short game and my long game and everything. I want to make sure I don't hit anybody here or anything. So we go to the golf range, right? And I'm hitting balls, and I'm like this cocky 12-year-old. So I'm just like, you know, yeah, I'm the stuff. You know, I'm the man. People love me. I'm the greatest golfer there is. I'm going to be Tiger Woods someday. So I'm hitting balls, and all of a sudden I notice a gentleman kind of come behind me in the stall, and he's, you know, stretching and everything like this. And, you know, he's got his, bag, his, uh, his bucket of balls over here, and he's going to be hitting that in a little while. And uh, he smiles at me. I smile at him. No worries. You know, we're just hitting balls. So for 20 minutes, you know, we're just hitting balls together. And my father turns around, and he looks at the guy, and he's like kind of like, who is that? Like he's kind of like thinking to himself, Okay, there's something interesting about this guy. So he calls me over, my father does, and uh, he pretends to show me something on the grip. And he doesn't say anything for like two minutes, so he's just, you know, looking at the grip. Kind of awkward, I'm like, what's, what's going on here? So my father says, that gentleman hitting balls behind you is Barry Sanders. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, okay. So I'm a little starstruck, you know, I get kind of anxious. It's like, it's Barry Sanders. And he said, don't look at him funny, don't treat him funny, just don't talk to him. Just recognize that you're hitting golf balls with one of the greatest running backs of all time. And I didn't look at him funny. I ended up just hitting my balls as usual, whatever. After that, things were normal. Barry practiced his game, I practiced my game. We went our separate ways. Now, according to the standards of the world, Barry Sanders was one of the greatest running backs of all time. And I was just a snot-nosed, pizza-faced kid, awkward teenager. But on the golf range, we were just two dudes who were trying to fix our short game and drive the ball and fix our hooks and everything. Because the golf game is the ultimate equalizer. But we were just, you know, people who were playing golf and hitting balls together. That's all we were. 
What we'll be seeing in our passage today is that as Christians, regardless of the standards of the world, we're to love people equally with fairness and respect. Because as Christians, it's our job to love everybody and to be that voice of mercy in a culture of judgment and to show people what it means to live into the kingdom of God. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It'll be up there on the screen for those of you who don't carry your, you know, big Bible with you or anything. But before we dig into this passage, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll use your Word to just change our hearts and change our minds, Lord. I pray that you'll illuminate the words of Scripture uh, and show us the ones that you want, to, uh, want us to obey in our daily walk with you, Heavenly Father. Transform us with, from the inside out so that we can faithfully, tangibly express the good news that you've given to us, Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 reads this. James writes, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ might, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And before I get into this passage, I kind of want to set up a little context here. So in James chapter 1, verse 27, James says that pure and faultless religion before God our Father is this, to help widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted, unstained from the ways of the world. Now, when we read scripture in our days, we tend to go chapter by chapter by chapter. But when the Bible was written, it was basically one big, long paragraph. So we need to read Scripture as a continuous conversation between the author and the audience. And I say this because James goes on in our passage today to elaborate on that one aspect of what it means to be unstained from the world. James says that if we want to remain unstained or unpolluted by the world, here's how we do it. We won't show favoritism or discrimination toward anybody. And some translations will say partiality. Other translations will say, dude, don't be a hater. That's my personal translation. You can purchase it out in the foyer over there. I'm just kidding. So that word that James uses in the Greek to describe partiality or favoritism or discrimination literally means to receive the face. And it basically means judging a book by its cover. So what James is saying is that as a Christian, you won't judge people based on their external appearance, their, their race, their gender, their ethnicity. You're not going to treat somebody differently based on those things. And this is one of those themes that you get all throughout Scripture. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't discriminate. You find that all throughout Scripture. Moses reminds the Israelites of that fact in Deuteronomy 10. When he says, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In other words, God doesn't abide by our worldly standards. He abides by his own. And his standards, needs, his standards see no distinction among people. 
So to discriminate based on people look or act isn't in line with the heart of God. And to do so is sin. It's plain and simple. Now here's something really cool about this verse, okay? When he says, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he's making a statement about who Christ really is. He's, he's glorious because he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And because of that, he's our Lord and he's our Savior. And implicitly in this passage... He's saying that the only one that you should treat differently in your life is your Lord and Savior. That rich man that you're treating really, really well ain't got nothing on your Savior. So that's just a little bit of a fun fact about the way the Greek reads in this passage. So James says, don't play favorites, don't discriminate. And he moves on to give a pretty good good example, I think. And he says, if a rich man comes in wearing some really, really nice clothes... And you treat him better than a brother who comes in looking a little disheveled or crumpled. You're in sin. Well, that's a pretty tough charge because that's, that's really, really, really minor. And I think of sometimes, when we think of sin, we think of big stuff. You know, lying, the cheating, the stealing, the adultery, the murder, the, the embezzling. But in reality, we sin every single day. And sometimes we do it in very, very subtle ways. And this is one of those subtle ways by treating someone who looks nicer and cleaner better than someone who doesn't have the money to afford those nice clothes. Now what's so crazy is that back in the 1800s, some churches would actually charge people for a better seat in the church. So rich people would sit at the front and the poor people would have to sit in back. So where you at in church became a sign of how much money you had. And there's been some talk about readopting that that practice here at Covenant. I'm just kidding. Never going to happen. So a guy comes by. His name is B.T. Roberts. He sees this. He's like, this isn't right. You know, I read scripture. This isn't, this isn't right. This isn't, you know, how, uh, how church is supposed to be. And that's how the free Methodists got started, literally, because going to church should actually be free. You know, right? Right? So I see this, and I'm just like, Lord, just forgive Christians for being so stupid sometimes, you know? So James is saying, look, if you're treating some people better than others, then you've got sin in your life, and you make yourself a judge. And the last time that I checked in Scripture, it was only God who could judge people. So when we practice that partiality or the favoritism or the discrimination, we're judging people based on worldly standards, and that's completely far from the heart of God, who is no discriminator against persons. And he goes on to say this. He kind of continues his argument a little bit in the next set of verses. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So James is saying here that you have to have God's perspective in everyday life. Because in this specific example that he gives about treating the rich better than poor, you should really be treating the poor better than you actually are. Why? Because God has chosen the poor in this world to inherit the kingdom of God. And here James echoes those words of our Lord Jesus in the Beatitudes when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Christians who are materially poor are still rich in spirit because they've inherited the kingdom and will have those treasures stored up for themselves in heaven. 
Now, what James isn't saying here is that if you make a little money, then you're in a spiritually happy place. That's not what he's saying at all. James is describing those Christians who may not have much in the way of material goods, but rely and are inclined to rely on God to meet their daily provision for their everyday needs. So he's describing the person who may have a smaller income and yet looks to God and trusts God to meet all of his needs. Now that's what God sees, okay? But we're human, so we automatically judge people on how they look. And when I see someone who walks into church looking as though they just stepped out of a GQ photo shoot or who smell good or look good, has an amazing smile, I'm going to treat them better than the person who has a mustard stain on their shirt, okay? It's just human nature, but human nature is full of sin. What James is saying is that your judgment has been clouded by the priorities of the world if you act in this certain way. You're in sin. And James isn't excluding those Christians who have been blessed with wealth. I'll say, I've said it before and I'll say it again, okay? The church has existed from the beginning based on the, the, the financial wealth of people, based on people's generosity. And those Christians who have been blessed with financial wealth have a responsibility to steward it well, meaning they give beyond their traditional 10% in order to advance the gospel. And I think James is referring to wealthy people in this passage who aren't Christians. He says that these people are those who oppress you. These are those people who take you to court and sue your pants off. And these are those people who look down upon you because you're a Christian. And James says, look, there's absolutely no reason you should treat them better than your poor brothers and sisters. No reason. So why do you show them preferential treatment? I love the way the message phrases it, okay? The message is a paraphrase of Scripture. Really, really cool. I encourage you guys to look it up online or uh, pick up your own copy. But the message says this, okay? Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are abusing these same citizens. Isn't it the high and mighty who exploit you, who use the courts to rob you blind? Aren't they the ones who scorn the new name, Christian, used in your baptisms? So look, these poor people are those brothers and sisters, and you're not loving them as you should. And that's James' primary concern, because in the kingdom of God, all are equal. And James goes on to dig a little deeper into the rationale for this. And before I go any further, I want to remind you that James is a very theological book. It may not have that richness or that depth of Romans or Hebrews, but James is concerned with how your theology manifests itself in your everyday life. And James wants to give a theological rationale for everything he says. And what he's been saying in this passage so far is that as Christians— We should not discriminate against people or show favoritism or treat people differently or be partial. And now he's going to go on to say why in the next set of verses. He says this, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, 
also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So James says, if you're discriminating, if you're treating people differently based on the standards of this world, then you've broken the whole law of God. Because if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. And we know what the Bible says about our relationship to the law. We've all broken it. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And James says to show partiality or to discriminate or to show favoritism isn't in line with what God has called us to. And you might say, you know, I agree to judge someone based on their sin is wrong. But I mean, come on, man. Some sins are worse than others, right? Wrong. It is all sin. It's all wrong. And you can try to make some elaborate arguments as to why some sins are greater than others. But that's beside the point. We're all sinners. I don't care who you are. My grandma who prays all day long and spends her time fighting for justice is a sinner. Your sweet little grandma is a sinner as well. Your kid, regardless of how cute they are, how cuddly they are, is a sinner too. Every single person in this room is a sinner. You have broken the law of God. But thankfully, when we come to accept Jesus, he forgives us of our sins and welcomes us into his family. Amen? But how do you do right in the sight of God as Christians? It's plain and simple. James says that you obey the royal rule, the royal law of love, which is to love your neighbor as you would yourself. You see, any sort of judgment that you do towards someone else on the basis, on any basis, is wrong and goes against this royal law of love because you're not loving your neighbor as you would yourself when you're showing partiality. Now, when James says royal rule or royal law, he means it's one of the greatest commandments to follow. I mean, Jesus said that this is the second greatest commandment. But it's also that commandment that best exemplifies what the kingdom of God is all about. It's royal. In God's kingdom, it's the highest law in the land apart from loving God wholeheartedly. And the implication of this is that as Christians, we're to inhabit the kingdom and live as kingdom people. We may live in this world. We may have to walk in this world and through this world. But the way we act and speak and live in this world, it has to indicate that we're living in an alternate reality or an alternate society called the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, there's no room to show partiality or to discriminate against anybody. Why? Because our task as Christians is to love people into the kingdom and to show favoritism to people or to discriminate against anyone is hindering your witness to this inbreaking kingdom. So James has essentially been saying, look, in God's kingdom, the highest law is the law of love. And in practice, the law of love requires you to treat everybody with dignity and with respect. And he goes on to close this passage with some important words. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As Christians, we're to be known as a merciful people because we have been shown mercy by an almighty God. God could have dealt with us according to our sins, but through Christ, he's chosen not to. 
We all deserve to suffer for our sins, but God cleared a path through Christ so that we can have abundant, eternal life with him forever. And the result is that we live with the spirit of thankfulness for all God has done and with open arms toward people who desperately need to know the loving, tender mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think many times in the church, we often look down upon people who are ensnared in sin and who don't know Jesus. Well, that's called judging. And a lot of times when we talk about judging, we try to justify ourselves, don't we? Oh, I'm just calling out sin. You know, I would never do that. But it's innate within us as sinful human beings to judge other people who aren't like us. And in our case, we want to judge other people who aren't Christians. But you remember what? Scripture has some pretty harsh things to say toward people who have or who carry that kind of attitude. Remember Jesus said, judge not, for by the same measure that you judge, you will be judged as well. And he also called out the Pharisees when he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to enter. And you read Paul, and he says within the body of Christ, we can judge each other in this family all we want because we're part of the same family. We can call each other out in the different things that we do. But outside of the church... That's God's place to judge. And as Christians, we're called to be a merciful people, people who will show love and mercy when the rest of the world will not. And the church has an enduring legacy of being the religion that social outcasts can turn to for love and for acceptance. Why? Because our Savior Jesus was like that. It's in our DNA as a church. So as a church, we need to be people whose speech is seasoned with love and with mercy instead of judgment and exclusion, because God could have easily shown us that same kind of judgment. But instead, he's opted for the way of mercy. So just to kind of recap and summarize this passage, what James is arguing is that as Christians, as people who follow the Lord of Jesus, Lord Jesus, we should not conform to the patterns of this world by treating some as first-class citizens and others as just a notch below. Because the royal law of the kingdom is the law of love, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And because God has shown us mercy despite the fact that we don't deserve it. So what does this mean for us today in the church in in 2015? I think the first thing it means is that people deserve respect no matter who they are. Now this bears repeating because we live in a world where we witness a lack of respect all the time for those who are created in the image of God. I think of young girls who are trafficked and abused by the people they trust. I think of the racism and the prejudice that continues to plague our country. And it was only a week ago that we saw a man walk into the church and take the lives of nine innocent people who the color of their skin was different than his. And I also think of Christians who are maligned and tortured and executed overseas because they refuse to give up the name of Christ. And as Christians... We're called to a higher standard where we see everybody created in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect and love. To hate somebody or to look down upon somebody or to judge somebody runs contrary to the royal law of love, which is to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Because when it comes down to it, we're all the same. We're sinners created in the image of God who desperately need 
the Holy Spirit, who need the gospel to come into our lives and transform us from the inside out. And as James tells us, we need to be welcoming of everybody in the church, and we shouldn't treat anybody differently than anyone else, because if we do, we're violating God's ethical command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as a church, we need to be a hospitable place where people can come into our presence from hurting or broken situations and see the love that we have for God and the love that we have for one another and the love that God has for the lost. I also think that this passage means this. To discriminate means putting the world's perspective ahead of God's. Now, when we go to our places of work or in our neighborhoods, wherever God has you, Your responsibility as a Christian is to look beyond the standards of this world and have the heart and mind of Christ toward everyone whom you encounter. The world may see a disheveled man who lacks lacks social skills and can't keep a job. The Christian sees a man created in the image of God who desperately needs the gospel. The world may see a drunk. You see a man created in the image of God who needs the gospel. And the world may see a rich man who has everything and has his life all together. You see a man created in the image of God who needs the gospel. And if you're here today and the world tells you that you're not enough, that you're not pretty enough, that you're not worthy of love or dignity or respect, I'm here to tell you that you're precious in the sight of God. You were made in his image. So everybody in the world, I don't care who they are, is worthy of respect because everyone's created in the image of God. They have inherent worth. And our responsibility as Christians is to love and respect everybody, even if you disagree with them, even if, you, if they annoy you. Peter has some pretty good advice for us here. He says this, honor everybody, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And what Peter means is that you honor and you respect everyone on planet earth, and that you love your fellow neighbors, your fellow Christians, that you fear God, you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you keep his commandments, and that you obey your governing authorities even when you disagree with them on some things. So the idea here is that in your relationships, whether they be with people in the church, outside the church, or with God, or even your political relationships, you're going to act the same way toward everybody with love and with respect and with honor because God has called us, the church, his hands and feet on this earth to a higher standard than that of the world. Another thing that this passage teaches us is this, that, you know, hey, we're all lawbreakers, okay? We've all violated the law of God. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. And yet Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our sins. There's no sin that Jesus hasn't forgiven. It's been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. But we need to exemplify that kind of love and mercy to a broken world. Listen to the words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. He gets judgy, okay? He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We were those people who were far from God. 
but now we have a rich life in God. And because of that, we need to love and respect and welcome those furthest from God into our presence and share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it all comes down to it, you know, it's all the same, okay? We're all created in the image of God. We're all broken sinners. And our call as Christians is to show mercy to everybody. This passage teaches us that it's all the same because this is what God has done for us. He welcomes the poor man. He welcomes the rich man to the feast that he has prepared for us and says that the world may see you guys differently, but I don't. And for that, we have to be thankful because we were once far from God, but now we're in God. And we have to show that same kind of love and respect and dignity and mercy toward people who are far from God still. That's what he's called us to to have that higher standard of the law of love. And that's what we celebrate right here in the sacrament of communion. We celebrate the fact that we used to be thieves and liars and cheaters and adulterers, but Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for all of our sins, and we bear that guilt no more. When we take communion, it is a multi-sensory experience. It's a reminder that all of us come to the table from various backgrounds, and yet we eat from the same loaf of bread and drink from the same cup. And by worldly standards, this is absolutely wrong. This is upside down because we're not all the same. But by God's standards, we completely are. We're people created in the image of God who desperately need God. Okay? So just as a bit of a reminder, you know, take a hunk off of the, the big loaf right there, uh, the stuff on the green plate is gluten-free if you need that. Um, and just come up. You know, I'll, I'll invite the worship team to come back up. And whenever you feel led, just come up here and just spend a little bit of time with God at the communion table. Just meditate on what he's done for you, what he's doing in you, and what he will do for you. Because where the world screams death, when we see all this death in the world, the church is the only source of life. I always think of uh, this one speaker I had in college. Um, he was talking about how Jesus Christ is the only absolutely one way to, to know God. And I began thinking to myself, I had some doubts, you know, um, because all these other religions preach good things. You know, why is Christianity any different? And this guy said, you know why it's different? Because Jesus proved it by raising from the dead. All other places, all their idols lead to death, but Christianity leads to life. And we need to be the source of life in this world. Because without us, the world is dead. The world needs hope, and we're that source of hope. So when you come and take that, that piece of bread and dip it into the cup, remember all that God has done for you, and God is doing in you, and God wants to do with you in the future. To take his gospel to the ends of the earth and show the same love and mercy that he's shown you through his death. You, we need to show it to everybody in this world. Let us pray.